I thank you, Tim, for that prayer of supplication. I'm humbled and appreciative of each one of you choosing to be here today to worship together and to allow me the privilege to expound on God's Word with you. And with that, I'll invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to the Gospel of Luke that I've been <clears throat> excuse me, walking through with you uh, over the past few Sundays, uh, sprinkled in with the messages by the preaching team in the book of Romans. But in chapter 6 of the Gospel of Luke, we'll pick up um, in our text, uh, beginning in verse 12. <clears throat> this text this morning represents a transition point in the earthly ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ as he is carefully uh, uh, shifting some of the responsibility of, of his uh, redemptive mission onto the shoulders of a group, a small group of hand-picked uh, followers, men that will assist him in his kingdom work. And we're going to be introduced to that, that um, elect group, if you will, in, in just, uh, just a few moments in the, in the passage. But one of the first things that I want you to see that I think Luke's wanted to emphasize to you and me is that as Jesus approaches this pivotal point in his ministry and this key decision, he does so prayerfully. And so the Lord's careful and prayerful preparation leads to the selection of the men who will be uh, leaders of the future church, if you will. And so in verse 12 it says, Now it came to pass, and it's not talking about uh, a particular time, it's like a, 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 in, in a moment, in a, in a season, if you will. Now it came to pass in those days that he went out to the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. Well, someone wisely said, if you're too busy to pray, you're just too busy. And I believe that. Prayer is such an essential element in the life of the believer. It was an essential element in the life of Jesus, the Son of God. And prayer occupied an important place in Jesus' earthly ministry. He, he participated in prayer. He modeled prayer. You know, as we look back in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 3, verse 21, it talks about when Jesus, you remember, when he was being baptized by John there in the Jordan, it says in verse 21 of chapter 3, now when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. And look what it says, and while he prayed, while he prayed, the heaven was open. Even as Jesus was preparing to be baptized, by John, he was in a mode of prayer, communication with God the Father, God the Spirit. And so that was a, a, a time. And, and while you're back there in, those, in that area, chapter 5, verse 16, we're, we're told, uh, and, and, and we're staying in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 5, verse 16, so he himself often withdrew into a wilderness and prayed. It was important that Jesus do this. You say, well, why would he need to go off somewhere? Why would he need to separate himself to go off and pray? I mean, after all, he and the Father are, are one. And, and so aren't they constantly in communication? I mean, just by their thoughts? I mean, is it important? Sure, Jesus is always constantly in, in touch with the, the Spirit and, and, the, and God the Father. But I believe he's modeling for his disciples in, in the course of the busyness of his earthly ministry. Greeting people, teaching people, ministering to people, healing people, casting out demons, confronting the, the, the opponents of the kingdom. 
In all the business, Jesus made it abundantly clear. He modeled for his disciples. It's important that you take time and get away. Get off and apart from the distractions of your normal life and concentrate on talking to God. How many of you do that on a regular basis? And, and, and carve out time to just commune with God in prayer. I know over in chapter 9 and verse 18, looking ahead in the Gospel of Luke, but just on this whole idea, I want us to just kind of weave a pattern, if you will, in chapter 9 of Luke's Gospel. It says, And it happened as he was alone praying, that his disciples joined him and asked him, you know, what did the crowd uh, he They were saying, who did the crowd say that I am? Here's a moment in the life of Jesus. His disciples are looking for him, and where do they find him? They find him doing what typically he's doing. He's pulled himself off and apart, and he's praying. I don't think there's a time that more, more powerfully helps us to see how Jesus relied upon the practice of prayer than when we see... Uh, Jesus there in the Garden of Gethsemane in chapter 22 of Luke's Gospel. If you want to just flip over there quickly, you know the story. You don't have to turn there because you know it. These are the last fleeting moments of Jesus' life with his disciples and he's taking them on the Mount of Olives there in Luke's Gospel chapter 22 verse 39 and in verse 40, it talks about when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. In verse 41, and he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and he knelt down and he prayed and, he, and it continues on and talks about the intensity of his prayers. In verse 44, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. So you see how important it was for the Son of God to be in direct communication with God the Father. And at this point in his ministry, realizing that he's going to make one of the key decisions of his ministry in selecting these leaders, if you will. And so prayer is guiding him in this. It serves to God in major decisions. You know, in John's Gospel... In John's Gospel, chapter 4, verse 34, we see an illustration of how this played out as John is, is, is given us there. You remember Jesus and his disciples are going through Samaria there, and, and Jesus is encountering the woman at the well. And Jesus was telling his disciples in verse 34, he says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me, and to finish his work. You see, Jesus wasn't down here on the earth, apart from God the Father, and embarked on his own thing. He was here, sent by the Father, working for the Father, carrying out a precise plan devised before the foundation of the world by God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And every step of the way, Jesus was making sure that he was keeping in line with the perfect will of the Father. He says to me, that's my food. That's what drives me. That's what motivates me. Is knowing that I'm doing the will of the Father. And in chapter 5 of John, in verse 19, Jesus said, 
to a group. He says, most assuredly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the father do. For whatever he does, the son also does in like manner. How is he going to know so precisely, exactly where the father is leading him, what the father is wanting him to do every step of the way? It must be done just precisely as the father has indicated. The way you do that is through prayer. And in going back to Luke's gospel now, chapter 6 in our text in verse 12, there on that mountain, it wasn't a quick prayer like so many of us are guilty of throwing up to God. It's not one of those hurried moments where we just, you know, get on our knees and cry out to God for a few minutes or, or maybe we think we're doing something if we're on our knees for 10 minutes or so. Oh no, the Bible says Jesus was on that mountain alone with the Father. He spent all night while his disciples were sleeping and being refreshed and renewed. He is pouring his heart out to God in this intensive inter-Trinitarian prayer. He's seeking Father's will in the task that's ahead of him. And now he's ready to act on the will of God the Father. And so this brings us to the next passage there in verse 13. You see the Lord's meticulous and unimpressive selection of those who would be the leaders of his church, if you will. Look at verse 13. And when it was day, he called his disciples to him. And from them he chose twelve, whom he also named apostles. There's, there's two different terms being used. We've already identified that disciples are those who follow Jesus. Every Christian, true, authentic, born-again believer is a disciple. The theme of this message or these messages through the gospel of, of Luke is follow me. Because that's a call that Jesus ushers to every person who chooses to put their faith and trust in him. Who chooses to receive him as their personal Savior and Lord. He's saying, okay, follow me. And there's some specific qualifications that go along with that. And so following that intensive night of intercession, Jesus is now ready to begin to call out of that larger group of disciples. It's, it's a pretty good sized group. As he's standing there and all of his these are all people that he has either said, come follow me, or people who have been watching him and are interested in him and have said, I want to follow this man by their own volition because I enjoy what he's teaching. I enjoy experiencing the power he displays. And so by their own choosing, they come and follow him. But the fact is, they are all following the Lord. And so now, out of that group, he is going to name apostles. Apostles, the term means a messenger, an ambassador, Someone that is a representative. And as we follow the scriptures further and go into the book of Acts, we'll see the key role that the apostles played in the life of the early church. They were the representatives of Christ. These were men who had who had walked with Christ, who had witnessed him, who had seen the power of his miracles, who had heard the authoritative uh, teachings of Jesus, and they heard the, the plan for the kingdom of God and his plan of redemption of mankind. They were qualified to stand. 
to represent him. And so I think it's important too that we understand that out of this out of this crowd, you know, you got authentic disciples, you got some who are serious and committed to following Christ. And just like today, you got those who are kind of nominal, who are on the perimeter, interested but not ready to make that commitment. And so Jesus now, having consulted with God the Father, is naming his apostles. I think it's in Mark's gospel. We were looking at it in our discipling uh, class this morning. Mark talks about in verse thir- uh, chapter 3, verse 14, and he appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. You see, Jesus had a plan for these that he was calling to function as apostles. And so it's interesting because as I shared, the, the, the group that he chooses, he has meticulously narrowed down from possibly a hundred or hundreds of disciples who have gathered around him. He's narrowed it down to twelve. And, and yet, as, as, as meticulous as he is, you know, if it was you or me, and we're very conscious of how the world looks at those that we associate ourselves with, and if we're choosing those to occupy a, an important position, authoritative position, we would probably be thinking in terms, well, how would the world look at this group of leaders? But yet you'll find that in the midst of these that Jesus is calling, though they are a diverse group, they're not a very impressive group, not by the world's standards at all. Because actually you're looking at, as we look at the names that we're going to walk through, we're looking at some pretty ordinary, uneducated, theologically untrained, rough around the edges, spiritually weak kind of disciples. But you know, that's the beauty of what God is doing in his kingdom work here. I want to just share with you what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. Now just think, here the world would look at this group of, of, of so-called leaders and they would say, what? You've got a group that's made up of fishermen and tax collectors and, and, and political zealots and then the icing on the cake and the infamous traitor? <laughs> you know, Paul was making this comment in 1 Corinthians in chapter 1. This is very humbling to all of us. In verse 26, he says, For you see, you're calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised. God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. Jesus selected a group of men that I guarantee you the religious leaders of Judaism of that day would scoff at. They'd thumb their noses out. They would laugh hilariously. Are you kidding me? Jesus, is this the best that you can do? Of course, we know the rest of the story. But out of this ranks, he calls. Go back to verse 14. Here are the apostles. Simon. 
And, and you'll notice consistently through the scriptures that when the disciples are listed, they typically are grouped into three groups of four. And the, the groupings begin with those who are the closest to Christ throughout his ministry. Those who are the most intimate of their relationship with Christ. An inner circle, that first group, Simon, whose name was Peter. And then his brother, Andrew. And his, uh, uh, his brother, James and John. So Peter and Andrew are brothers. James and John are brothers. Peter and Andrew are fishermen. They're in a partnership with James and John. Peter and James and John are named regularly at times when Jesus would take a small group with him on the Mount of Transfiguration in the Garden of Gethsemane. He'll choose Peter, James, and John because those are the three that he, he, he bonded to the closest. It's interesting. Andrew's in that inner circle, but he's more quiet. He's overshadowed by his big brother Peter. There's not much to say other than the fact that Andrew brought Peter to Christ. And then the, 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 the James and John often referred to as the sons of Zebedee. And, and sometimes given the, the infamous title of being sons of thunder. They were not very reserved in their, their attitudes uh, and their feelings. They expressed what they thought. And sometimes they were pretty boisterous in their opinions, such as the time when the Samaritan city rejected their invitation, the invitation of Jesus to come and to, to be in their midst. And the Samaritan town rejected them. And, and James and John, you know, felt like, well, hey, Lord, do you want us to just call down fire from heaven? Let's, let's torch those rascals. And so Jesus was having to temper the sons of thunder a little bit. Their personalities were, were, were different. These, these two brothers were also closely associated with Jesus in, in, in their own family relationship because their mother, Salome, was sister of Mary, which means Jesus was first cousin. And they were, they were not hesitant when it came to trying to settle the argument that often arose between the disciples about who's going to be the most important in the kingdom. You may recall one incident where they got their mom, Jesus' aunt, to come on their behalf and say, how about appointing your cousins, my, my boys, James and John, one on the right, one on the left. We, they deserve to be the, the closest and have the most prominence in your kingdom, Lord. And Jesus put, her in their, put them in their place and saying, are they ready to drink the cup that I'm about? Are they willing to endure the suffering that comes along with, with doing the work that I'm doing? So there's James and John, Andrew, Peter, making up that first group. And then we shift to the next group. There also in verse 14. Philip and Bartholomew. And uh, of course we, we know that, that uh, Jesus found Philip in John's gospel there early on and, and called him to follow him. Bartholomew sometimes is given the name Nathaniel. Not much is, is known about Bartholomew or Nathaniel. He, he's, he's a quiet, reflective kind of man. But then in verse 15 we see uh, an apostle that we recognize, Matthew. He goes by another name, Levi. We encountered him earlier as Jesus was walking along and there was Matthew the tax collector. 
He's sitting at his booth and Jesus issued a call to him to come and follow him. And, and Matthew dropped everything that he had and followed Christ. Which spoke volumes about the faith that he had in, in, in Jesus to, to, to leave behind a business that was lucrative. Not very honest, but he was making a lot of money. He wasn't very popular with the Jews, but he was making a lot of money. And yet Jesus called him and he dropped everything and followed him. And then there's Thomas. I know already in your minds, most of you have already added the extra word, the title that goes with him, Doubt in Thomas. Thomas tended to be a little bit skeptical. When the disciples after the resurrection of Jesus were assembled in the room and Christ came and, and appeared to them and, and Thomas was out dealing with his own grief by himself and came back and they said, the Lord is, has, has arisen, we saw him. You remember Thomas's skeptical response? Yeah, yeah, I'll believe it. After I've had a chance to put my fingers in the nail scars in his hands and, and, and thrust my hand into his, the, the spear wound in his side, then I'll be convinced. Of course, when Jesus did show up the second time, eight days later, he offered to let Thomas do that very thing. And Thomas just fell down on his knees and says, my Lord and my God. It didn't take sticking his fingers in the nail hole. But, but this skeptical Thomas, let me tell you something that I read in the commentaries about Thomas. Though he may have had that tendency to be a little skeptical and, and, and careful in, in, in looking at facts and things like that, Thomas had an undying love for the Lord. When Jesus was announcing to his disciples that he was headed to Jerusalem and, and back into Judea to, to see Lazarus and his family, which was right there, just a few miles from Jerusalem. Already the, he, the, the disciples knew that the Jews were already plotting to kill the Master. And they were saying, oh no, no, not, not back in Judea. Certainly not back in Jerusalem. We, don't want, we need to stay away from there. I'm paraphrasing. Thomas was the one who stepped to the plate and said, no, let's go, boys. Even if we die, we're going to stay with him. So Don and Thomas had a, 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 a wonderful love for the Savior. Then we move to the next James there, verse 15. James, the son of Alphaeus. We don't know much. These latter apostles, we don't know much about. Very, very little is, is revealed about them. But, but they're always listed like this in the Scriptures. James, the, the son of Alphaeus. And then Simon, called the Zealot. You see, there were the Pharisees, there were the Sadducees, there were the scribes, and then there was a group that was known as the Zealots, making up Jewish society, Judaism, if you will. And, and the Zealots were pretty much the Jewish terrorists of the day. I mean, these people hated the Romans. They hated the Romans with a passion. They plotted ways in which they could foil Rome's plans to rule over them. They looked for opportunities. They had da sharp daggers bound to their legs and, and mingled into crowds where Roman soldiers were and they would stab them. So this is a, 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 a spirited and, and a very volatile group. And just think about it. In Jesus' selection, he's calling a tax collector a traitor, if you will? A man working for the Roman Empire? Extorting and embezzling from his own people? He's got a, a tax collector mingled with a zealot? That's like mixing nitro and glycerin. 
But there's no evidence of any episodes where Simon tried to kill Matthew. But it just shows the diversity and the unlikeliness of this unimpressive group. Then there was two Judases. The first one, again, we, we, we know very little about verse 16. Judas, the son of James. His spotlight in the scriptures, the time that you see Judas, number, number one, Judas, the son of James, is, is recorded in John's gospel, chapter 14, verse 22, when Jesus was there and was talking to his disciples at, at the Lord's Supper. And, and, he was, and, and the question came up, Judas asked, Lord, these things that you're telling us that others can't understand and you're revealing to us about the kingdom, can you explain that? And that was really about the only time that he had a speaking part in the whole drama. But yet, he would be one of the apostles of the church. And then finally, last but certainly not least, we come to Judas Iscariot, who also became a traitor. Another consistent pattern in the listing of the disciples is every time you find Judas listed in, 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 in the list of disciples, except for in the Acts chapter 1, he was just excluded because he had already killed himself. But Judas is always listed last. And inevitably, when his name is given, he's described as Judas the traitor. Judas the traitor. He would live in infamy for centuries to come. And to this day, you mentioned Judas Iscariot, and immediately traitor comes to mind. You know, in our country, we've had a number of traitors. I'm not talking contemporary politics. I'm staying away from that. But I'm, even in the history of our nation, going back in the colonial days, there were traitors who, who turned in, uh, against the colonists and and, and, and came over to the side of the Indians and, and betrayed the colonists and helped them to get the upper hand? I said, yay. No, anyway. Uh, but <laughs> in the Revolutionary War, you know, you, you, you're familiar with the, the, the famous or infamous, you know, Benedict Arnold, who ratted on, you know, the co co colonists and George Washington and gave away the plans of West Point to the British and, you know, he defected to the other side. I I wish Jan were in here because I, 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 I want to make sure I got this right, but uh, her, her dad's middle name was Arnold, and I think, I think her grandfather's name was Arnold. But, but anyway, I think she was telling me that they were doing, one of her relatives were doing a, a, a family tree search. And they, they went back and went back and they went back, and when it got to the name Benedict Arnold, they stopped the process and destroyed the evidence, I think. <laughs> Maybe... <laughs> that's not gospel, but I think that's what she told me. So anyway, but uh, I thought it was humorous. So there's, there's Judas. And it's interesting as we see and follow along in the gospel of Luke and the pattern, we'll see that Judas, Jesus loves him just like he loves the other disciples. He imparts to him the same wisdom he does to all the other disciples. He embraces Judas Iscariot as much as he does any of the other disciples. There's nothing that Jesus did to slight Judas Iscariot. But we'll find it as we see the, the whole gospel play out in the ministry of Jesus that Judas had another agenda. Like some people coming to so-called Christianity today. People who make supposedly professions of faith. You know, some people just want to get in so they're on the inside of religion. 
Some people just want to call themselves a Christian or go through the motions because they like being associated with the culture of, of, of contemporary Christians and having a, a group of friends and, and all the social activities and, and all the perks. But deep down, their, their heart is really not in following Christ as a disciple. And so it was with Judas. He was kind of like maybe uh, Simon the Zealot. He had, he had an agenda. He was hoping that, that Christ was going to overthrow the Roman Empire. That Jesus would bring into his own kingdom and, and institute his own kingdom and get rid of the rotten Romans and, and have uh, uh, Israel at the top of the, the pile again. And he would become rich and famous along with Jesus. But there they are. These men that Jesus would pour himself into to be his apostles as we move further and begin to close in chapter 6, in verse 17, Jesus has called these apostles now. He came down with them and stood on a level place with the crowd of his disciples and, and, a, and a great multitude of people from all Judea. And, and here Luke has given us the scope of the appeal of Christ. I remind you what I told you before. The popularity of Jesus is growing exponentially. And, and the name of Jesus is, is reaching out there. Judah, Jerusalem, representing that whole, not just the region of Judah, but all of the, the, the regions of, of Israel. And even reaching out to the, the, the seacoast, to Gentile cities of Tyre and Sidon. So you see, they all came for two purposes. Number one, they wanted to hear his powerful teachings. His authoritative word was attracting many people. And yet, they also came to be healed. And so, we see people are attracted to his authoritative teaching and comprehensive healing attracted many people. Many, the hordes of people were coming to him. And when Jesus is healing, folks, he is healing with entirety, completeness, comprehensively. Look at verse... Um, 17 it says and he healed at the end of verse 17 and be healed of their diseases as well as those who were tormented with unclean spirits and they were healed and the whole multitude sought to touch him for power went out from him and healed them all isn't that amazing everybody we're not talking about maybe just a, a few hundred or even a few thousand people Multiple thousands of people coming and all of these needs and Jesus by the power that is only possessed by the Messiah, the Son of Man, the, 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 the great Son of God is able to heal everyone. Not just some of them, but everyone. And so Jesus has made this key decision in calling the, the very men that would serve as his apostles and he will indeed be with them and he will send them out as his delegation to preach and to heal on his behalf. And in this, in this whole mix, I hope you see, you see the name of God, Emmanuel, played out. From the very beginning of the, the, Jesus' birth in Bethlehem, the name that was attached to Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. And Jesus is living this out right before their eyes. God is, is in their presence. Only God can teach this way. Only God can heal like this. Only God can cast out demons like this. 
And He's drawing people from all persuasions. You know, the Lord still attracts a diverse group of people today. Jesus attracts those who are just curiosity seekers. Who just want to come and sample without making any kind of commitment. He attracts people that are hurting. People who have been wounded physically maybe, emotionally, relationally. They are usually attracted to Jesus. People who are searching for answers. And the main thing to realize that in the midst of all that mix of people who are attracted to Jesus, not all of them will follow Christ. Not all of them will be true disciples. Not all of them will be those chosen by God. Jesus said in John's Gospel, chapter 6, verse 44, No one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. Out of that whole multitude, Jesus knew those that the Father would draw to Him and who would be His disciples. And of all the people that come in and out of churches, claiming to be seeking Christ, claiming to want to be a Christian, only those that God has foreordained and elected and chosen will He bring all the way to Christ. To heed the call. And Jesus says, come and follow me. I trust that as you hear the gospel of Luke as the Spirit of God livens your spirit, I pray and trust that indeed, should you be one that God has chosen, He will draw you all the way to that point of life-changing decision to say, yes, Jesus, I want to follow you. I want to be in the ranks of your disciples. I will take up my cross daily and I will follow you. I'll deny myself and I will follow you.